It's time for the Off the Mound with Ryan Dempster podcast presented by Sloan. I'm your host, Ryan Dempster, and today I'm joined by 29-time, 29-time, holy cow, Emmy Award winner and 2018 Hall of Fame inductee, Bob Costas, stopping by. So, without further ado, let's go off the mound with the Hall of Famer, Bob Costas. Bob, how are you doing today? Hey, Ryan. How are you? I like your set. You know, this is not just fly some fly-by-night podcast thing. This is this is very high quality. I'm impressed. Thank you. Well, my bank account's running low here with the amount of money I've had to put into it, but we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're in October baseball. This is the uh, this is the um, the pinnacle of it all, right? The championship season yeah. that ends. For you, what does October baseball mean to you? Well, a variety of things, but I'm old enough to go back in my memories to when every World Series game was in the afternoon. And when it was such a big deal, baseball being the unquestioned national pastime, when I was in grade school in the 1960s, and the Yankees, since I grew up in the New York area, almost always being in the World Series, I can remember teachers bringing black and white television sets into school and saying, all right, whatever the lesson is, forget it. We're watching the World Series. And we'd watch the first few innings of the World Series, then hop on the school bus and get back home in time to see the end of the game. And I always associated the World Series with Mel Allen's voice. I thought Mel Allen just permanently worked the World Series, but it was because then NBC used one of the announcers from each of the competing teams, and the Yankees were almost always in it. So Mel Allen's voice was attached to almost every World Series, as was the Gillette theme the Gillette cavalcade of sports. So when they came on the air, it was and all the bunting hanging over in the crisp fall air and the whole different atmosphere of it. Um, I guess maybe those memories are the most vivid because, you know, everything that that first touches you when you're a kid or a younger person tends to mean more and stick with you longer. Yeah, it's likewise for me. I mean, I just, you know, when I think of World Series, I think of your voice just... You know, growing up and and you know being younger than you and hearing hearing your voice, it always permeates through that. And I have so many great memories. But as far as World Series that you covered, I know this is probably mm-hmm. like a really hard one to determine. But do you have one that sticks out in your mind as your favorite World Series you ever did? You know, in many ways, the most dramatic and interesting was '86 between the Red Sox and the Mets. Uh, Vin Scully and Joe Garagiola called the series. Uh, but I was the pregame and postgame host. Uh, and people may have heard me tell this story before. I was in the Red Sox clubhouse. They're up by two uh, in the bottom of the 10th inning of game six at Shea Stadium, up by two with two out and nobody on before the Mets put together that improbable rally. So I'm there in the clubhouse preparing to interview the Red Sox and thinking, wait a minute, there wasn't even broadcasting the last time the Red Sox won the World Series, which then was 1918, there wasn't even radio at that time. The medium had barely been invented and it hadn't started uh, with baseball until the 1920s. So this is truly the first time anything like this has happened. So I'm trying to put all that into perspective and think how I might present it. And the next thing you know, one thing leads to another. Gary Carter gets a hit, Kevin Mitchell gets a hit. Ray Knight fists a ball over Marty Barrett's head. And poor Mrs. Yawkey, the widow of the longtime Red Sox owner, Tom Yawkey, had been brought in, and she was as frail as could be. She looked like a stiff October wind might blow her right out of the 
uh, the room. And Peter Uberoff, the commissioner, was there, and they had the championship trophy on this wheeling table that was covered with some sort of felt, and all the plastic was up over the lockers in anticipation of the champagne spray. And then as this Met rally played itself out, I remember saying to Mike Weissman, who was the producer, through my earpiece, what do I do if the Mets tie the game? Yeah. And he says, get out of there as quickly as possible. And by the time the ball trickled through Bill Buckner's legs, they'd already begun to break it all down because during Mookie Wilson's long at bat, uh, a wild pitch had been thrown and the tying run had scored. And so by the time the Red Sox, many of them ashen-faced, made their way down the tunnel from the visitor's dugout toward the clubhouse, every last hint that we had been there was gone. But I was standing off in the shadows and no one spoke a word as all those Red Sox came traipsing down that tunnel led by John McNamara, the manager. And then I heard one word spoken uh, as a bat crashed and broke against the cement wall. And you can guess what that one word was uh, that punctuated the silence. And then not the next night because it rained the next night. Uh, so they played game seven on a Monday night. And this is a little side note. Game seven on a Monday night, Washington against the New York Giants on Monday night football. The seventh game of the World Series got a rating in the 30s. And the football game opposite, it got a rating of like eight or nine. Wow. Um, and everyone who said that the, uh, the Red Sox were done the moment that lead slipped away from them in the 10th, the Red Sox went in front 3 nothing in game seven. Yep. The Mets rallied. They went in front 6-3. Red Sox came back, made it 6-5, had a man on second with nobody out in the eighth inning. They were that close. So if they had rolled over and died, they took a very long time to do it. Uh, and forgive me, Ryan, for this very long answer, but I think that a lot of times the drama of something has to do with the history of it. You know, what made the Red Sox finally winning in 2004 so great wasn't just that they had waited since, 20, uh, since 1918, but so many heartbreaking near misses. Yeah. 1946, game seven against uh, the Cardinals in the World Series. 1949 in the pennant race, they lead by one with two games to play at Yankee Stadium last two of the year. The Yankees win both those games. Uh, 1967, impossible dream pennant, but they lose the World Series in seven to Bob Gibson and the Cardinals. 1975, we know they had a three nothing lead in game seven against the Reds at Fenway and the Reds came back to win. 1978, the Bucky Dent home run. Then comes 1986, and then comes 2003 with Pedro on the mound uh, at Yankee Stadium and a lead in game seven of the LCS, and that slips away. It isn't just the passage of time, it's all the near misses. So when they list the teams in various sports that have the longest routes without a championship, I think the ones that where it's felt most acutely is when you can say, oh, so close and yet so far. The Cleveland Indians have that now. You know, they haven't won a World Series since 1948, and they weren't very good for much of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But starting in the 90s, they had some very, very good teams that came very, very close a number of times. And it's that, I think, that increases the kind of the texture of the story and the drama 
when it all plays out. When the, when and the now rest... I've taken all your time. Good night, everybody. <laughs> I love it. No, I'm, that's, what I'm, that's what we're here for. When the Red Sox finally – I'm curious, and I never thought of this before. It's just as you were saying the answer. When they won in 2004, did part mm -hmm. of you go to that moment in 1986 – when you saw Mrs. Yaki, when you did, did you kind of go back in that memory bank again and go, I remember what this is like, and I'm happy for, you know, A, B, or C. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, you always have different relationships, and people think that announcers are always rooting for one team or another, and that's true generally of hometown announcers. But network announcers almost always just root for the most interesting and dramatic storylines. So if one team is trailing in a series two games to none, you hope that team wins the third game to make things interesting. You hope it goes seven. You hope the seventh game is dramatic, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't help but have certain affinities. So when the Red Sox came back on the Yankees in 2004 from down 3-0, that was really a great thing. On the other hand, Joe Torre is a close friend of mine. So, <laughs> And when they beat the Cardinals in the World Series, I spent most of my adult life in St. Louis. So if I let my heart get involved in all these things, it would be being tugged both ways. <laughs> you know, the sense of baseball history said, this is great for the Red Sox. The local affinity for the Cardinals said, oh, maybe not so much. Um, but you learn to appreciate the great storylines. And the Red Sox were a great storyline, uh, just as the Cubs were a great storyline. The times they came close and didn't get it, and then when they finally got it in 2016. Um, you've covered so many games and you've seen so many World Series playoff performances. Individual-wise, what, what stands out to you as a player that just really truly led his team to a, a world championship? I'm thinking of a team that you were on in 2013, David Ortiz. The Cardinals, like, gave up. They treated him like he was Barry Bonds, you know, at the turn of the 21st century. He hit, like, 700 in the series with a couple of home runs and would have had more, but the fact that they walked him eight times, as I remember, four of them intentional. I mean, we know that Big Poppy was one of the great postseason performers ever. Uh, you know, the, the analytics guys say there's no such thing as a clutch hitter. Well, David Ortiz's career kind of uh, refutes that, but it was at its height at that in that 2013 World Series. Uh, I guess the next year, um, I think it was 2014, yeah, when uh, Madison Bumgarner had the incredible postseason. Yep. He wins the wild card game against the Pirates. He pitches very well in the next two rounds against the Nats and the Cardinals. And then against the Royals in the World Series, he wins two games as a starter and then pitches a very long relief stint in the seventh game uh, in Kansas City to close the thing out. Uh, I mean, I, as a kid, I saw Koufax in the World Series. I saw Bob Gibson in the World Series. Uh, and maybe they had more uh, big moments than Bumgarner when you take their whole career together, but I don't think they were any better in any one World Series in any one postseason than Bumgarner was that year. Yeah, I truly, I, I agree with you on Bumgarner. I felt like that was as as much of a performance as a pitcher putting his team on his back because you know they were they were a really good team. They were a great team. They won the World Series, but they're not that same team without him, and he led them there. You, you oh, said no. something. You said something about Big Poppy, which kind of leads me into my next direction is you talked about the Cardinals and the walks and just walking people and that was almost like the game plan the analytics of it said we got to walk and we got to put them on base instead of evaluating each situation right like I get behind in the count okay now it makes sense where do you see analytics now what do you like about analytics and what do you don't what is it that you don't like about analytics see I don't think there's any doubt that analytics are a very important part of 
building a team, yep. evaluating individual players. It's information that a manager wants to have at his fingertips for in-game strategy. But I do think there are certain circumstances where you say that what makes sense in the macro doesn't necessarily apply in the micro. Uh, the best example I can think of, you cannot argue with the success of the Tampa Bay Rays approach. That approach works over the course of a season. The fact that they haven't won a World Series doesn't disprove that it doesn't work. Yep. Uh, what, what they do is based on if we do this over a long period of time, we'll get the best results over the course of a long season. But I think that sometimes, and Blake Snell in the World Series last year against the Dodgers is a good example. In game six, he is just totally dealing. He's gone through however many innings, I guess he gets into the sixth inning, um, and they turn the lineup over for the third time, and analytics say, this is when you, you bail on the guy. Uh, and we know that the Rays have gotten through entire seasons with their starters averaging less than five innings per start, even though they won 100 games this year, which is, which is amazing. But in that one situation, not only is Snell dealing, but he's faced the first three hitters in the Dodgers lineup six times, twice each. They're 0 for 6 with five strikeouts. Plus, this isn't all playing out on a computer or on some sort of theoretical spreadsheet that applies in general. In this particular moment, Blake Snell is feeling it. They bring Anderson out of the bullpen. He'd had a great season, but in the postseason, he'd been knocked around in his last several appearances. They're both human beings. One guy's feeling good about himself. The other guy, not so much. So that's why in that one situation, I'm thinking that, you know, Kevin Cash and company did everything right all season long and again this season. But I might have gone away from that uh, in that sixth game. I mean, look at it this way. You have a diet and exercise program. If you stick to it, you're going to be in good shape. But it's Thanksgiving. You can eat the turkey, you can eat the stuffing, and you can eat the pumpkin pie because, damn it, it's Thanksgiving. And this was the World Series, and maybe what applies at other times doesn't exactly apply that time. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I always said sometimes you can face a lineup six times. You're going that good that day. And there's other times where mm -hmm. the manager comes and gets me the third time. I go, hey, man, you should have got me after the first time through the lineup. <laughs> Bob, pace of play. This is something that I know I've heard you talk a little bit about. Uh, I'm a big proponent of uh, pitching quickly and working through a game quickly. Mm -hmm. What do you think the majors' issues are of pace of play, and what can we do to make it better? Because what's happening right now is, is not the most enjoyable version of the game of baseball that we could get. No, it's not. Baseball is supposed to have a pleasing, leisurely pace, not a plodding, lethargic pace. And even the best games, some of which are postseason games, uh, when they go four hours, you know, the drama and what's at stake kind of mitigates the the uh, concern about the dragging pace but still a baseball game shouldn't take a nine inning game shouldn't take four hours to complete i'm 100 percent in favor of a pitch clock with nobody on base and no matter how some players grumble about it they will adjust players always adjust you know i understand in a dramatic situation late in the game runners on base that's different but in the third inning, nobody on base. Pedro Baez, you know, if it was the if it was the NBA, he'd have a 24-second violation <laughs> on every pitch. And even if it was college and it was a 30-second clock, he'd often violate that. Pedro, what are you thinking about? You're not writing your memoirs out there. Let's go. 
Yeah, it's uh, it, it, to me, it's an interesting thing. I don't know if it's, you know, the mental skills aspect of it. Every team has a mental skills coach now. They're taught to slow the mm -hmm. game down. But at the same time, something about the fluidity. You watch a pitcher like a Max Scherzer who goes out there and it's rocket fire, here we go. Is that a reason for his success? I kind of believe so. Is there pitch clock? You mentioned the pitch clock. Um, rules. What rules? We saw some rule changes. The runner on second base starting the extra innings, different things that have gone on. What rules changes are you for? And do you have any in your brain that you would go, I would really like to see this happen? Well, I'm not so sure that I like the uh, minimum of facing three batters. I think that really handcuffs managers and, and leads to some um, results that aren't really fair necessarily. I understand that that's designed to get things moving and stop the parade of guys out of the bullpen, but I think that it's too much of a of a strategic obstacle. Um, I don't really like the runner on second base. I'm glad they don't use it in the postseason. If they're going to use it in the regular season, I'd begin it in the 12th inning and at least let a couple of innings go by played under normal circumstances. But something I would favor, uh, if I'm a manager, I'm going to use the shift every time um, my data tells me to use it because competitively it's your advantage to do so. But every sport, other sports have rules about where players can be formations in football, uh, blue line in hockey, uh, whatever it might be, the lane in the NBA, the width of the lane and, and how long you, uh, you can be there before a three second violation is called. And so to me, I think baseball could legislate that you have to have two defenders on either side of second base. Now that could mean that the second baseman's instep is on the first base side of the second base bag and the shortstop the same, if that's the case. And in those rare late inning situations where uh, a Joe Madden or somebody wants to bring in an outfielder and have five infielders, that's different. Then you can have three guys on, on one side uh, of second base. But you have to have a minimum of two infielders on either side of second base. And I think that would open up the game uh, offensively and it would increase batting averages. You know, one of the things that's missing generally are rallies. You know, a rally is an exciting thing. Yeah, absolutely. A walk, a bloop, a double. Do we hold the guy a third? Do we wave him home? The ball's in play. There's relays. The ball's in the gap. Guys are running. There, you know, there's different aspects to it. There's baseball action. You want more baseball action. Um, so... I'm, I'm in favor of that. Do you, how about, okay, so you talk about being in favor of that action. You know, do you feel like the way that pay, players are paid leads to some of that? Because we're, they're paid on OPS. They're paid on slugging. Yes. So then if you reward the guy for hitting 300, then maybe we'll start to see guys kind of put a little bit more focus on that? Yeah, it could be. Could be. Or, you know, there ought to be analytics about productive at-bats. You know, yeah. you, it ought to be noted. You hit a ground ball to second base in a certain situation. Uh, it's startling to me how many guys don't know how to bunt. You know, one of the reasons <laughs> managers will tell you off the record why they didn't call for a bunt in a late game situation where a bunt might have made sense is because this guy can't bunt. Yeah, never he, even tried. He's never learned to bunt. Yeah. So, especially in the American League. Um, you know, guys who can bunt, you know, in the National League, you were you were were there for a long time. You pitched in, in both leagues. You look at a guy like Adam Wainwright, who's an all-round athlete. He's always been a good hitter. But the best thing about him when he has to hit is that he knows how to lay down a bunt, even with two strikes. And that's an interesting, subtle aspect of the game. 
Yeah, and a part of the game that is a difference maker. That's what I always took pride in. You know, when I played with Greg Maddox in, in Chicago, he always said, get your bunts down and try and hit the left field foul, foul pole. That was the only goal I had. And, and it's, it's great advice. You can win a lot of games if you can get sacrifice bunts down. You know what? I checked last night, knowing I was going to be on with you, and one year you led the league in sacrifice bunts. I, uh, Alex Fernandez, early on in my career, he said to me, and this is an interesting stat talking about analytics, he said, if you look at your sacrifice bunts and your wins, they'll roughly be in the same area every year. They'll always be outliers. And I had lots of seasons mm -hmm. where it was 15 sack bunts, 15 wins, 17 sack bunts, 17. Like, it was the ability to do that because you're keeping yourself in the game longer. You're putting guys in scoring positions. So you're exactly right. I, I know that it's probably inevitable that we're going to have a DH full time around. But I, I think it's truly an advantage if you have a team that have a pitching staff yeah. can handle the bat. Um, speaking of pitchers who yeah. can handle the bat, Shohei Otani. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing out of this guy, I mean, from your perspective, you've seen so many baseball games, you've called incredible players both on the mound and at the plate. Is what he's doing revolutionizing the game of baseball? I don't know if it's revolutionizing it because I don't know that anybody else will follow. Probably there will be somebody someday. Uh, I think he's really, though, a unicorn. There's nobody like him, including when people go back and it's understandable and compare him to Babe Ruth. Nothing's ever going to minimize Babe Ruth's place in baseball history. And he would have certainly made the Hall of Fame as a left-handed pitcher had he not switched to the outfield. But there were only a few seasons of significant overlap of him as a pitcher and a hitter. And never in both areas to the level of excellence simultaneously that Shohei Otani has reached. Was, uh, were Ruth's best years as a Red Sox pitcher? even better in the context of their time than Otani's pitching performance now? Yeah. Um, and were his best years in, in the 20s for the Yankees as a hitter? They're some of the most historic seasons in baseball history. Were they better than what Otani did this year? Yes. But he never simultaneously was as good a pitcher and good a hitter in the same season as Otani. And the game has changed so much. We're talking about nearly 100 years uh, certainly 85, I guess, or whatever it is, between the end of Ruth's career and now, um, that the game has changed so much in the interim that o what Otani has done is like from another planet. And he really is. It's been absolutely incredible. I know what it takes to start every fifth day and have to do that. I can't imagine having to go out and hit, too. So what he, you're right. It's absolutely incredible what he's doing. And here's another thing. He stole more than 20 bases. Yeah, he's the fastest guy on the team. Right. Hits triples. I mean, the guy's unbelievable. Um, so now we're looking at a guy like Shohei Otani in today's game. Coming up, and you're covering all these different players, who, who was the guy that moved your needle where you were going to cover a game and you couldn't wait to watch what he was going to do on the field? You know, I, I like the guys that were distinctive, not necessarily uh, only great, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. was both great and distinctive. He was a joy to watch. You can't deny Mike Trout's greatness. But Otani is more, Otani is completely unique. Uh, Ozzie Smith was kind of in that category for me. He was just such a stylist and such a joy to watch play shortstop. He was a guy who liked Magic Johnson and basketball. Yeah. He exuded joy. And so people were able to connect with that. I was always a big Ichiro Suzuki guy, not just because he was great, but he was so interesting because he was playing a throwback style of baseball 
during a bludgeon ball era. I mean, if you could have brought Ty Cobb back from the dead, he would have looked at this guy and said, yeah, I, I get what this guy's doing. You know, slapping the ball the extra the, the, the other way, bunting, everything about his approach to the game, infield hits. Uh, plus, he had a tremendous reverence for baseball history. Uh, I did the first interview of any length, American uh, interview of any length with him in 2003. Um, and he used an interpreter, but you could tell that he understood a lot more than he let on. And his answers to these questions were as thoughtful as any athlete I've ever interviewed in any sport. And he showed a great knowledge of the game's, of the game's history. He was talking about George Sisler who played for the St. Louis Browns in the 1920s and at 420 one year. And Sisler ultimately broke his record for most hits in a single season. And then after breaking that record, when the Mariners played an interleague game against the Cardinals in St. Louis, he went to the cemetery and visited Sisler's grave wow. as an homage and an act of respect to wow. the guy whose record he had broken. Um, so... So there you have it. Oh, by the way, I, I should reach across. It happens to be here on my desk. I see the bobbleheads that you have. Yeah. Um, and so look at this. No bobblehead really looks like the person. Wait a minute. Let me get this in the screen. That's, that's pretty thing. good this, right there, though. Mine doesn't, just like, mine doesn't look anything. I guess it has a little bit of the – I had the goatee for a while. Here, I got another one. Bear with me. Hold on. Yeah, I love bobbleheads. Bring them in. Here we go. Here we go. So this one – this one is from a long time ago, okay? And they gave me this thing at uh, some sort of charity deal in Pittsburgh. And so here's the bobblehead. And I, I said, can you see it? Yeah, here we go. Here's, I can see it. here's the bobblehead. And I, they handed it to me when I got up to speak. I said, thank you for giving me George Hamilton's tan and Ellen DeGeneres' wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Oh, that's <laughs> Why so is good. Why the image? There you go. I noticed you got a couple broken ankles on that bobblehead, though. Yeah, it, it took it took a tumble. That, <laughs> yes, it did. That that happens. It's permanently I actually, on the injured list. I actually had a bobblehead that um, was going to be released with the Marlins, and then I'd been traded to the Reds, so they canceled bobblehead night because I'd been traded. Oh no. Yeah, but all this shipment was coming over of bobbleheads, and my best friend growing up tracked one down on the internet. It arrived, and when he took it out of the package, the right arm was fractured. And two weeks later, I had Tommy John. So I think it was a voodoo doll Ooh. slash bobblehead doll. Ooh, that's like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, he kept it. He glued it back together. I had Tommy John, and everything turned out all right. Well, now, I don't, I don't know what the clock on the wall is telling you, but I don't want this session to end without us talking about Harry Carey, because lots of guys do Harry Carey, but your Harry Carey is way up there. I, I appreciate that. You know, as a kid, I, I, I got a chance to watch him, and then coming to Chicago, I think that's when it really took a turn, and I got to be around Dutchie a lot, and I got to get uh -huh. real stories. Like, I, I always say I have a mix of actual Harry with Will Ferrell doing Harry Carey, but I get the real stories because I picked her brain all the time. I still do. Mm -hmm. and, and Pat and Pat Hughes. So I would sit on the plane. I'd go, give me a story. Tell me something. How about you? Yeah, I know you had so many interactions with Harry. What, what yeah. is a great Harry Carey story that Bob Costas has? You know, Harry liked me, luckily. And there were so many day games uh, at Wrigley. And when I was doing the game of the week in the 80s on NBC, we often did Cub games because they played afternoon games. So 
we'd show up, Tony Kubek and I, on a Friday, you know, hang around the batting cage, sit behind the home plate for a few innings with the scouts to pick up some stuff. And then I'd come up to the press box and talk to the writers and maybe drop by the booth with Harry and Steve Stone. So the game's over. It's, you know, early evening, five o'clock, whatever. And very often Harry would say, hey, kid, I can't do it. Hey, kid, come on, let's go. And we'd make the rounds. But I don't know how old Harry was, because I think he may have lopped a few years off with the birth certificate <laughs> originally read when he was Harry Carabini. Uh, but, you know, he, he had he had at least 40 years, maybe 50 on me. But he could pound that Budweiser, I'll tell you. And I was a young guy, but I couldn't keep up with him. And now here we are. We're on about our third stop of the evening into the late night. And wherever he went, he was like a Pied Piper. He really was the mayor of Rush Street. And we wound up at Harry Carey's restaurant. And of course, he was the king of that place. And when he was so charismatic, you know, people were just drawn to him. He's still loved in this town. He's a legend, an absolute legend. Um, you, you, you mentioned all, you know, you've covered so many things, um, you know, World Series, NBA Finals, mm -hmm. you know, Olympics, all these things. Greatest performance that you've ever seen out of any athlete in any sport the greatest performance that you've seen? Well, if you're just talking about perfection, then you can't do better than Usain Bolt in three Olympics, the 100 and the 200 and three straight Olympics, and he just blows the field away. The guy who's second is closer to the guy who's last, practically, <laughs> than, than he is first. And then Michael Phelps, overall, is in his career, goes eight for eight in the pool in 2008 in Beijing. Uh, Simone Biles, who unfortunately had to drop out this time, but in 2016, mm -hmm. she redefined what excellence was in virtually every gymnastics discipline to the point where no one even disputes that she's the greatest of all time. So those are performances that are excellent uh, in an objective way. But if you're just talking about the circumstances uh, and the drama of it all, I might go with Michael Jordan in game six in 1998, the last of the six Bulls championships, he had had better games than that. At that point, he's 35 years old, which is advanced basketball age. Scottie Pippen has a bad back. He's hobbling around. I think Scottie scored eight points in that game. And the only other Bull who was in double figures was Tony Kukoc, who had 15. Now, Michael Jordan had many games in his career where he scored over 50 and he was completely masterful. But this was really a triumph of perseverance and will on his part. He played all but three or four minutes of the game. He only shot, if I remember, I was calling the game with Doug Collins and Isaiah Thomas, he shot 15 of 35. So that's not that great. But when they needed him at the end, when there was nobody else to turn to, he made a series of plays in the closing moments of the game one after another, boom, 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 without which there's no way they win the game. They have to play a game seven in Utah with Pippen hobbling around. He may have saved the whole series. He winds up with 45 points, and keep this in mind. When people compare um, statistics in the NBA, the final score of that game was 87 to 86. And in that era, that was kind of typical of postseason games. Michael Jordan averaged over 30 points a game for his career. He led the league in scoring 10 times. Now, if you just compare raw numbers, if you score 30 points in a game that winds up 120 to 118, that's a whole lot different 
than scoring 30 points in a game that Absolutely. winds up in the 80s, let alone 45, scoring more than half of your team's points. And then you think of that last play. You know, you think back to the last dance that covered that whole era uh, of Bulls basketball. You couldn't find a moment more classic than that for an all-time great athlete among the handful of most significant athletes in the history of American team sports. You couldn't find a closing moment like that. I know he came back and played with the Wizards a few years later, but essentially that's the way the curtain came down on his career. And it wasn't just that he made that last basket. It was so classic and he held the pose. You know, Ted Williams hit a home run in his last time at bat and that was incredible. He's 42 years old at Fenway Park, but it wasn't the seventh game of the World Series. It was a regular season game and his team was toward the bottom of the standings. I can't think of anything that exactly compares to what Jordan did when he brought the curtain down for the Bulls. Yeah, I can, I'm glad you had that answer because it, to me, growing up, that was watching that moment happen was just, you know, it was it was inspiring, it was motivating, it was everything as a young kid trying to be a professional athlete to watch somebody mm -hmm. at the highest level leading his team to a championship. It was just incredible. Um, you've, you, bucket list. What does Bob have on? What do you have on your bucket list? There's got to be something out there that we got to make happen. One, one thing you got to be able to do. You know, every time I give this answer, and it is an honest answer, uh, then somebody gets wind of it and I get all these offers, which is very nice. But the one thing I never did, and I thought when I was just coming out of Syracuse University, uh, I thought that if I was going to be a baseball announcer, I'd have to go to the minor leagues and I'd do it happily. That seemed like something that would be a whole lot of fun to do and you learn your craft. And the way my career went, the first games I ever did were on network television. Um, and it turned out just fine, but I never had that Bull Durham experience. So I've mentioned that even at this stage of my life, I think that's something that I would enjoy. And no sooner do I do that, then um, various teams uh, make me offers. Whatever it is you want, not not monetarily, but you know you can have all the hot dogs you want, drink all the beer you want. You can stay this in this place or that place. You can ride the bus with us. You can do two games. You can do two months. You can do whatever you want. And then I, then I have to say, oh, that's really great. Uh, to the Albuquerque isotopes and uh, <laughs> whatever. The, there's so many teams with great, uh, the Toledo Mud Hens are always there and the Chattanooga Lookouts. And, the Savannah uh, Bananas, that would be a good one. Oh, the Savannah Bananas, right. They're always they're always up for, for anything. Uh, the Greenville Drive, uh, as you may know, having been with the Red Sox, all the Red Sox uh, affiliates have miniature Fenway Parks yep. so that they're, their players can get a get a sense. The dimensions are the same. Uh, the, the stands are smaller. So the Greenville Drive, uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, a pretty little ballpark seats 5,000, but it's a miniature Fenway with a monster and the, the bullpen fence and a pesky pole and, and the whole thing. Um, and in fact, just about a week ago, I heard from uh, the, the Durham Bulls and they said, you know, come on down whenever you want to. So I, I guess I got a pretty good chance to check that one off on the bucket list. You got to do it Bill Murray style. You know, Bill Murray loves to just show up unannounced. Work right. his way in somewhere and somewhere. You don't let anybody know you're coming. You just show up to the Durham Bulls or the Savannah Bananas or the Iowa, whatever it is. You go make your way in, and I'm sure they'll have a seat yep. for you in the booth. You have time for a Bill Murray story? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, having played for the Cubs, you know what I'm talking about when I refer to the Sandberg game. Yes. Which is one of the most legendary regular season games ever because of the circumstances. It was 
Cubs versus Cardinals, gorgeous Saturday afternoon at Wrigley Field in 1984. And it was the game of the week on NBC at a time when the game of the week really meant that. Uh, in many cities, if you didn't have a major league franchise in your city, that was the one game you could see. That was the one time you could see Fernando Valenzuela face Johnny Bench or whatever it might have been. So it was a big deal. Um, and Sandberg had this extraordinary game where he had five hits, two of which were last-ditch game-tying home runs off another future Hall of Famer, Bruce Souter, one in the ninth and one in the tenth. And the Cubs wind up winning the game by a score of 12 to 11. Uh, and the movie The Natural had just come out a few months prior to that. And I said something to the effect of, you know, this is the real Roy Hobbs. Forget about Robert Redford. This guy's the real Roy Hobbs. So that game became kind of legendary. Okay. Bill Murray is a huge Cub fan. He was in Europe shooting a movie then. And it wasn't as easy as it is now to get a link to a, a broadcast and just watch it on your on your laptop or whatever. So here it is the following winter. It's January. I'm in New York. It's cold. And I get a call from a Madrashad. Uh are you home? Yeah, I'm home. I'll be there in 10 minutes. Okay, fine. So he shows up, door opens. There's Ahmad, who's a very stylish guy. So he always looks like a million bucks. There's Ahmad. And with him is a guy that I swear, Ryan, for the first split second, what is he brought a homeless guy over here? What? <laughs> like he's all disheveled and he's wearing a weird like knit cap. I did, you know, it is wintertime and baggy jeans. And I take a closer look, hadn't shaved in about a week. I take a closer look. Jeez, it's Bill Murray. I, hey, Bill, how are you? And this is what he says. I understand you have a tape of the Sandberg game. So, yeah, I do. And what that meant was VHS tapes. Yeah. You know, an hour apiece. So there were five of them for the game, right? So we started in the seventh inning. I, yeah, I kind of caught him up on what had happened until the seventh inning. This is when the real heroics happened. We call out for pizza. And we sit there in January and watch the Sandberg game with Bill Murray. Oh, come on. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. That is so great. Well, Bob, thank you so much for sharing everything today, for stopping by off the mound, sitting down, and then having a good time with us. This has just been a blast. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be with you. Well, I mean, if you're not entertained an hour's worth of Bob Costas, then I just really don't know what I have for you, folks. It's still great to catch up with Bob, to hear more conversations like the one you just heard. Please download and subscribe to the Off the Mound with Ryan Dempster podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and it's all presented by our good friends at Sloan. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later.